It's interesting, if I remember correctly, uh, it seems like according to the suttas, the scriptures, some people point out the only time that the Buddha has actually been asked, according to the suttas, directly, you know, whether the self exists or doesn't exist, he refused to answer. And I think in the context, it is because um, the Buddha probably perceived that the person who came and asked him had an idea about the self. Well, I don't know what precisely his idea was. And the Buddha just didn't want to enter, as it were, that game on that level to just, you know, give another idea or refute or um, agree with or, or contradict an idea. Because the, the result, if you are attached uh, to a particular idea about self, I mean, we're also going to need to define what, we, what, what does it actually mean. First of all, it's just a word. I mean, but, I mean, in, usually in the Buddhist context, this word atta, in the, from the Pali context, self, which turns out self means like an substantial, substantial kind of nucleus, nucleus, kind of essence of what we are, um, maybe something like a soul or something like that. So that, of course, has Christian connotations, and I'm certainly not an expert in Christian theology, but this kind of idea of what something that we are essentially, something that is lasting, self-same, our true essence, our true self, which is not destructible and just moves on, you know, after death, either, either finding another rebirth, being reincarnated, or going to heaven or hell, or some other kind of particular kind of state, but basically being something that's immortal and doesn't change. So the Buddha refused to answer because he just didn't want to, I believe, you know, enter on that level of, of just theories about it, because that's something that he never gave. That wasn't his approach. If he would have just, you could see that if he would have just said, no, I, I think you know, it, it doesn't exist, you know, his, his, the person who came to him would have just been surprised, shocked he could choose to be either agree or don't, you know, or be confused. It, in fact, that's what the Buddha actually said when Ananda afterwards asked him, why, why didn't you reply? He said, if I just told him that the self doesn't exist, then this person in question would have just been confused and, and, and bewildered, perhaps, you know, what do you mean, I don't exist. You know? Or, of course, the other way around, even if somebody, somebody agrees, saying, oh, yeah, I believe you, Buddha, I'm a good Buddhist, then we can just pick that up as another idea. And then you can go around as a good Buddhist and say, no, I don't exist, you know, <laughs> or I don't have a self. And he was pointing out, like, particular, this, this particular case, that people can even hold on to the idea of non-self with self. It becomes very dear to us, this idea that, you know, Buddhism is right, the Buddha is right, so there is no self. And that's my view. You know? so, I, so I think I don't have a self. And so if somebody comes along and says, oh, yes, you have a self, then we start an argument, you know. And that's exactly what the Buddha was interested to point out, because he would point out, in his view, the, the, the self is much more an activity, something that we're doing, rather than a thing. You can know, say on the level of, of a theory about self, uh, according to the Buddha, and history seems to prove it right, you can, you know, f argue until those metaphorical cows come home, isn't it? This is never seems to be settled. And certainly, human beings seem to have argued about it as far as human thought has been recorded in history back about, you know, do we have a self or what is 
don't we have a self? Or most, you know, if you look into the history of spiritual traditions, religions, teachers, philosophies, most people would somehow come down on some, traditionally on an idea that we've got some kind of essence, some kind of self. But notoriously, of course, thinkers and believers in human history could never agree among each other, you know, what precisely how this works, what this self is, and how, you know, in which way is immortal, and how does it relate to some supernatural reality, you know, where can it be found, what happens to it after this. I mean, people have always argued about this, and they're still, of course, it's not settled, isn't it? It might be settled for some individuals who believe a particular theory, but it's never been settled in the sense of a common agreement. It's one of the, not the obviously, by far not the only one, but one of the very, these days, very visible causes of division in humanity, isn't it? People hold on to different ideas of what the true nature is, you know, what the nature of God is, and what the nature of ultimate reality is. And debates are fought over that, endless debates, and even you know, this violence is, is committed in, in the name of those theories to defend a particular theory. Wars are fought over that. Isn't it? So you could see that usually they tend to not be very good at convincing each other of our particular idea. And usually at some point, one or the other runs out of arguments and then weapons are being picked up you know, instead and to you know, settle the argument in that way. You know, I show you that I'm right by showing that I'm stronger than you are. And in that, of course, has never worked in history. It just perpetuates religious strife and violence. So I think even at the time of the Buddha, the Buddha was very aware of that because there were lots of different sects around, different sects of ascetics, wandering ascetics, and, and also, the, of course, the official kind of Brahmanistic religion who held all different kind of views. And the Buddha consistently, if you look at the scriptures, just wouldn't buy into that. He just wouldn't be interested in arguing about those things on a theoretical level, about metaphysical theories. Because as he said, what he was interested in, uh, the only thing is that he was interested in teaching, was about suffering and the end of suffering. He felt those theories, empirically, if you look at it, don't help. Rather, for people around, they create just more suffering, because people just grasp those ideas, and then they get worried about, you know, is my idea actually right? You know, if how come? You know, other people don't seem to agree. So if their idea is right, then my idea might be wrong. So then my whole idea about my immortality and all that might is challenged. You know, and that of course, it's not a trivial issue you know, for human beings because that question of of death and being you know, being conscious of our own death is something that's disturbing. You know, and which of course breeds ideas about immortality which are, after all, first of all, just ideas. So the Buddha was much more interested in looking at the nature of ideas. You know, what are they? How do they work? And what do they do to us? So the Buddha's approach then was much more pragmatical. He would always move towards the place that the people he's talking to to get them to look at your own experience, investigate, take responsibility for your life and investigate yourself. And look, how is it in your experience? What is self in your experience? And so the first thing that we find, and which part of, of course, of this puzzlement is based upon about non-self, is all of us, I would think, certainly, if we have a you know, healthy kind of psychological functioning, if you're functional, we've got some sense of self. In it. It's, it's something like a, like a feeling kind of sense of, of being somebody. That is like an empirical truth. And the Buddha didn't deny that at all. You know. Rather, he would question some of the implications that we draw from that. So 
we need to, of course, ask, well, what is this sense of self? First, it's just a feeling, you know, then we invest it with certain ideas. What is it actually pointing towards? What is it actually relating to? Why is there this sense of self? And what might it indicate? What could be this self that it is referring to? And I think the first and obvious thing is that it relates to ourselves as individual beings, you know, first of all, as individual physical beings, you know, our body, you know, our sense of embodiment. We can distinguish ourselves in that sense, and there's a kind of coherent, self-sustained being there, and that lasts through time. And consciousness, the way it operates, whatever our particular theory is about consciousness, is it just an epiphenomena of the body that just arises out of the body, related to the body, is, is embodied for the time that the body is alive. As long as you're alive and in a body, then you know that consciousness works through the body, isn't it? We are conscious of a world, or perhaps actually more precisely, so we're actually creating you know, the world from the, initial, from, the, from the primary sense impressions that we get through our experience of the body. You know, we experience the world through the body. And so consciousness always seems to be related to this body. You know? Wherever we go, you know, that's what our senses present of, that's, that's what we are conscious of. And it's, it's wherever we, we feel ourselves physically, that's where also our mental experience is happening. You know? it's, it's if I think, I experience myself as thinking here. You know? It's not that my body is somewhere sitting here and I experience myself thinking in my heart or something like that. Isn't it? So there's a, this, this coherence. You know? it's, it's the, the experience of consciousness is embodied. And the body it is, of course, a concrete thing that is placed in space and time. And it's something that we can experience as lasting you know, throughout experience. So it becomes a reference point. You know? Of course, more recently there's been a lot of research about con consciousness and neurology has become kind of one of those very um, in sciences. And a lot of research has been done around how consciousness relates to, to our nervous system and also some very quite interesting research about how the sense of self is, is actually created and sustained out of you know, particular individual circuits you know, within our brain. They're certainly involved, per se. And I, I wouldn't claim that it has been settled, but there's just this one interesting story you know, that's told about that, how this works. It's quite interesting how we can see how, just as a physical organism, this, this sense of self is created out of this particular kind of functioning. You can see like how there are, there are systems in the brain that, of course, monitor the state of the body at any time, you know, which gives us, when it becomes a conscious experience, with a feeling about, first of all, that we are aware of the body, no. We've got this, what's called proprioception, I think. No. We, we feel the body from inside, as it were. And that is an on, gives, gives like an ongoing background to all of our experience. It's always kind of there. It's always something we can tune into. Not that, no. You can obviously, how am I feeling right now? And all this. So the inner kind of state of the body. And, of course, at the same time, there are different parts of our nervous system which is constantly receiving input from the from what we call our external environment and so the organism as itself with this brain can monitor the external environment the internal environment like the body the interaction and how the internal environment this is the body changes through the interaction with the environment all that gets mapped in different interrelated circuits and subsystems in the brain and the brain is just an incredibly complex organism of multiple interrelated 
circuits and systems and subsystems, feedback loops and so forth, so they kind of all kind of work together. So the whole thing is kind of always, you know, monitoring its own functioning. And this whole system, which we call the body, is always primed towards finding, a, I think, what you call in biology homeostasis, you know, finding an equilibrium, basically keep integrity, keep functioning. Once this becomes conscious, you can see that, the, that the, there's something that you can call like, like a proto-self you know, or some kind of core sense of self or some kind of basic awareness of the organism as itself. It's a, it's a lasting, it's a perpetuated thing. It's not just a random succession of experiences. There's an order in there. You know, there's a system behind it which kind of always keeps looking towards, moving towards equilibrium, you know, towards well-being, basically. That's how we translate it, of course, in our conscious experience. So there you've got a basis for a sense of self. It's always with us. You always know whatever experience you're having, it's happening to this one. I'm feeling my feelings. You know, I'm not feeling Tanyana Visudi's feelings. It would get very confusing, isn't it? If he's going to start to pick up my feelings, I'm picking up his feelings, and I'm, I'm not able to actually distinguish. Our whole system, our body-mind system, is constructed in a way to always create this sense of coherence. Now, you add on to that the marvelous capacity that the human brain has for memory and, you know, link that into it, then you get what you might call an extended sense of self. So you've got, through any kind of experience, you always have this basic sense of it's, it's always the same organism that is having actually these experiences. It's this one. That's not very sophisticated yet. You know? But then you can always connect this sense of self to this enormous reservoir of the memory bank of our past experiences. And then you suddenly get this extended sense of me as a person, as a history. You know, the narrative sense of self, me and my history, everything that happened to me, and the complex self-images that we create out of that about ourselves. You know, so this thing becomes much more defined and also complex and complicated. You know? And then with that, of course, you start to get the vastly enhanced ability to learn from your past experiences. You remember, ah, hang on a minute, we had this one before. You know, what happened last time? You know, so, so maybe what I should do, uh, try, you know, plan B again, because plan A, A didn't work last time, but that time this, this, my other strategy worked, so maybe this time I straight away go to plan B. You know? That's marvelous capacity of, of the human mind, of course, with this extended sense of self, to actually learn from our past experience, to actually then be better equipped to meet challenges of the future. If you didn't have this capacity, it would be very difficult now if after this talk, if we go back to figure out which mattress does actually belong to whom and, you know, which room are you, you know, you, you need to remember. But, of course, even more sophisticated, no? I mean, all the, all the, the wonderful capacities that we have for memorizing significant details and, and skills and, and, and learn and improve our performance all the time. So the ability to plan. And then with that, of course, comes also in this, this other capacity that gets linked into this narrative, extended sense of self, which goes with self-image, is the idea of control. Now, with this planning, there's, of course, a certain amount of control that I can exercise on my environment based on my past experience. So far, so good. It's, of course, a marvelous and highly sophisticated invention. I find it quite amazing. Sometimes, you know, spiritual people kind of look down a bit on, on science as being kind of reductionist and all that kind of thing. But if you read modern-day books about biology and also the neurology about the brain, what you can notice is just absolutely um, gobsmacking to me. Like I was mentioning the, in the body-sweeping meditation, the other one, the amount of muscle cells that you have in a single muscle. I think it's in the number of billions, right? 
And if you do any movement, just a movement like this, you know, there's a vast amount of number of muscle cells who all at the same time, exactly the same time, need to go through to quite a sophisticated process in a very miniature to size, of course, burning these molecules of it's ATP, isn't it, in order to actually make this happening. And the body does it all the time, totally synchronized. We don't even have to worry about it. Our good luck, we don't need to worry about it. <laughs> we could never figure it out for ourselves, isn't it? And the brain, there are far more possible connections of brain cells, you know, so particular kind of different possible states of connectivity of brain cells in the brain, um, than there are particles in the universe. Each, each brain, you know, of, you know. But then you also see that the downside of it is, of course, this, this complicated thing also very easily something can go wrong, you know. There's only very little thing in the brain that has to go wrong, and this whole thing goes haywire. And that is, of course, the exact, that's, that's exactly the point. So you could, to this extent, say, of course, there is this sense of self, and it has this sense in terms of that it relates to this, this body, this minded body, this body and mind. And it's very skillful, in that sense, that, like, to have, actually, this sense of identity, you know, if somebody comes into the room now and says there's a phone call, an important phone call for Avinando, then I know that I, it's me, right? It has to go, it's very useful to know, isn't it? So that to be able to have the sense of self, oh, that's me, you know, it's not somebody else. I'm not just fusing into your one, you know, so you all have to come with me to the telephone. <laughs> you know, that's very skillful, but it's also very fragile, and that's the whole point. The problem starts if you start to really believe that, invest in that as some ultimate lasting entity. There's a sense in which the body is self in the sense that it's a separate, separate and semi-independent entity, but it's not going to last. It's constructed, it's dependent, and therefore it's going to fall apart. We all know that. We don't have to study Buddhism and for, for knowing that. And so it's not going to last. So it's not a refuge. It doesn't, it kind of, the body cannot be a self in the sense that we have talked about before, in the metaphysical sense, you know, as a, a substantial, you know, or, or a true essence or something. And the same with the mind. The mind is even more fickle. It changes all the time and seems to be out of control most of the time, isn't it? I mean, there's a certain amount of control there. That is things, but there isn't somebody, and certain, you know, scientists certainly haven't found any, any little homunculus in the, in the brain who's kind of in charge of it all, nor is there any particular part of the brain that is running the show or some, apparently, I mean, we are free to believe, of course, have our own beliefs, some, some non-material entity that's you know, using the brain in order to... It's just, it's just this, this complicated, interrelated systems, you know. And you can see these days, uh, you know, there, there are more and more of these studies and, and case reports which are very interesting but also very shocking, isn't it, to read. And, of course, we come across it in our own experience. What happens, you know, for, for people with just some little part of it just this goes dysfunctional? You know, significant parts of what we take for granted as part of our sense of identity, sense of self, just fall apart. Now, if we believe that our mind, as we know it, the mind as we experience it, which is basically mental activity, isn't it, uh, is us, is ourself, then that's not a very reliable thing to, to bank on, isn't it? Because we know it's, it's going to fall apart. What happens to your sense of self, to yourself, when you get Alzheimer's? No? Immediately, if you think about that, if you know somebody, you know, family, stuff, you get Alzheimer's, it's very shocking, it's a very threatening thought, isn't it? This, 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 this capacity to create, actually, this sense of self can fall apart because it's not some ultimate lasting uh, undying reality. It's something that is constructed. 
marvelously and, and skillfully constructed you know, by this organism, but all the time it always has to be kind of supported and, and be reconstructed. And if it doesn't work, your world and your sense of who you are and what you are can go completely kaput you know, and becomes dysfunctional. That is what we experience ourselves to be. There's a sense of self, so naturally we grow up, so who am I? Well, you know, here, no? good old me, body, or, or maybe as well, maybe if I'm not the body, I have a body, or maybe I'm, you know, I'm something that's thinking, but I'm not something in the brain, isn't it? Somehow it's, you know, we, we kind of move around, but we can never quite kind of settle for, I think most of us probably not settle for a satisfying theory, well, that's, that's it. There it is. But it seems to keep manifest the sense of self precisely. Neurologically, you can actually these days explain it quite satisfactorily because it keeps being constructed. By, if there's a functional organism, a functional brain that works well enough, it keeps being con constructed. But so then, of course, if you start to wonder about it, we, that's, we start to maybe feel a bit uneasy. No? I think that's a lot of what, what what anxiety, underlying sense of the anxiety in, in, in life is about. And that's an aspect of what the Buddha identified as dukkha, the inevitable dukkha of life, as long as we are attached, not looking for happiness, uh, true security, in experiences, in a sense experience. And that's related, to, of course, also if that's where we try to find our sense of identity, because it is not stable. So then how we feel about that? You know, we seem to be faced with the sense of our own destruction. For most people, that doesn't feel very good. You know. It's what, of course, um, can motivate people to go into spiritual search. We feel this, you know, there must be something else. And yes, I mean, in some ways, the Buddha certainly also, among like other spiritual teachers, says there certainly is another possibility. You know. But he didn't say, well, there is a true self that you can find somewhere, you know, if you look long enough. But he said there is a possibility of not being anxious about this. There's a possibility of living entirely in peace with reality as it is, or as it seems to be, at least in our experience. Because in the end, what do we know? We have this feeling of being somebody, somebody, something unique, and it's always here. As long as I remember, I've always been here. Before me, I don't know. You know I don't, don't remember. The feeling that I, maybe I might not be anymore so doesn't feel very good, so I prefer the option that maybe... Maybe I am somehow lasting and substantial. Something in me must be there, which is somehow survive the physical death and you know, hopefully is also going to be unaffected by Alzheimer's in some way and is somehow moving on and is doing whatever. Who cares in the end, you know, whether it's going to be reborn or whether I'm going to go to heaven, you know. Hell I'm not too sure about. But, uh, you know, as long as somehow it, it keeps going, you know. So any idea that's on offer out there that tells me, yeah, that's true, you got on, you're on the good wicket there, you know. Um, I tell, that's my that's I, I found this, this is right, you know, just sign up here, you know, you'll be one of us and you'll be safe. Sounds very good. And so many, not, not all, but many of course spiritual teachers, teachings, whether traditional ones or new agey ones or something, that's what's on offer and that's usually what sells most, what most people go for and really invest energy, enthusiasm and belief in because well, it's an easy way to make us feel good if you can only really believe this. And sometimes, some people, as we find often, that people have a very strong convic conviction. You know, and they really feel like what they've got is, is the truth and they've got a proof. But if you check out what the proof is, the proof is really often just a belief. Not just a feeling because you believe something really strongly that somehow proves 
that this is true. But there we are back in the story where we started with, of course, then there's a problem that, you know, there, there are so many different beliefs around there. And if you pick out one, what happens to all the other ones? You know, does it mean every other belief has to be wrong? And of course, people have different takes on this. And you know, these days, you know, some people are, tend to look more for kind of similarities and find a more ecumenical as their approach and just looking for what's actually similar in essence or something. Other people, you know, really are more stronger inclined to narrowly focus down on, oh, this is the one that I've chosen. This must be right. Everybody else is wrong. You say, well, how, how do you know? Then how could it be? You know, they're just the one that you chosen is right. And that means everybody else is wrong. I mean, so many people in the world just got it wrong. No, that's the breeding ground for fundamentalism. It's, I think it's nourished by this maybe denied underlying fear of extinction, of death, perceived as some you know, permanent nothingness in, in, a, in some negative kind of sense, or the very sense of not knowing, doubt. You know, that's the discomfort to live in a situation where you just have to admit, oh, I don't know. Actually being able to be comfortable in a position of not knowing is actually very powerful if that becomes a lived reality. You don't even have to be a, a, a convinced card-holding Buddhist and say, well, I know, I know better. I know there isn't really any self. Ultimately, well, I don't know. You know maybe you do know. Fine, I, you know, I don't know whether you know or whether you just pretend that you know or don't know. But even if you don't know, can that actually be all right? You can just be so, well, this is the story that so far sounds most convincing to me, and I'm quite comfortable with this. Maybe one day I'm somehow convinced of something else, but for now I'm quite happy to not know. But this seems to be what seems to be most reasonable to me or whatever. What is happening then? I was saying we, we followed the story as it was true to this, you know, okay, body doesn't really... Doesn't, can't, doesn't really hold up to our expectations of a lasting self. Mind doesn't really work either. Next thing, I can create some idea about being something or having the true essence of something that survives. Again, if you take the Buddhist approach, he wasn't so much interested in the, actually the idea. Well, that's why I started this. Is it right or is it wrong? He said, well, do you really know? Maybe you don't. Maybe you think you do. But look at your experience directly. What is it actually in your experience? Well, generally, I'd say, of course, I can't speak for everybody who, who holds one, some kind of theory, but it's, it's a theory, isn't it? It's an idea. It's an idea. It's a thought. This we can always know very directly. You know, I've had, and I keep making up, my mind keeps making up theories about what is the ultimate nature of the universe, what's going to happen after death. But I don't know. But I can see this is a thought. That is a theory, and it's, it's arising now. And it might sound attractive now, and I might believe it. Or I might sound, well, that's an interesting idea, but I'm not really sure. It might sound unattractive. All that is an, an actual experience that I can have right now. It's a mental experience, another experience. And what is that, a mental experience? What is a thought? Well, it's not a true self, right? It's a theory. It's a thought. It's a movement in the mind. It's constructive. And so it's not, it's not reliable. It's not lasting. What happens to your ideas or beliefs in, in self or your, your, your divine essence or whatever, when you get Alzheimer's again, you know, there it goes. You, know, you lose it. Or even your Buddhist beliefs, you know, you might not be able to hold them together or remember them. You know, if your memory goes, if you get senile, you might even not remember that you're a Buddhist or call yourself a Buddhist. So that's not a reliable thing, isn't it? It doesn't matter what kind of religion or path you sign up to. That's a constructed thing. 
So it's not something that's ultimately reliable. And then what else is there? There's a feeling. There's a feeling that I am something definitely. So again, I look directly in my experience. So that, that is, remember, that is what meditation is about. And that's why meditation is about that, about bringing awareness into the present moment, into your actual experience. Then you can look directly. The feeling of me, of self, what is it? It's a feeling. That's where it starts, that's where it ends. It's just a feeling. It doesn't mean that it has to be true or that it has to point to anything real. It's just a feeling. And the feeling comes and goes, and feelings change. Feelings are not reliable. The feeling is not self either. So then, what are we left with? You know, increasingly, our iceberg is melting, isn't it? <laughs> it gets smaller and smaller, and maybe the anxiety creeps in. Well, then, the last thing, often for identification, is the meditator's last stance on identification tends to be consciousness or awareness itself. There's experience, and there's a knowing of the experience. There's a feeling of self, and there's a knowing of the feeling. There's an idea of self, and there's a knowing of that. So maybe I am the knowing. I'm just the knowing. And all the other things are just experiences. This is just thought coming through. Krishnamurti, if you, if you ask me, he had this, this great line. It's saying that thinker is just another thought. You know, we always immediately assume, oh, yeah, there's thoughts in the mind. I'm the thinker. But if you look at it, that's just another thought, isn't it? It doesn't, it doesn't have any substantial reality. It's just a thought. It doesn't guarantee us anything. Obviously, just if I think something is happening, I can say that much. <laughs> but precisely, you know, well, you know, I can't say there's somebody thinking. That's just a thought. But then what is this knowing? So maybe I'm the knowing. But again, look directly. You can see it. You can do that as an experience, isn't it? Ajahn Sumedho liked to use this. You know, you just say, say very slowly in your, in, your, in your meditation, your mind, I am Ajahn Sumedho. Well, he can do that. You better, well, you, you can use it, but you can say... <laughs> No, I am Catherine Jones. It's a thought moving to the mind. You can listen to the silence before. Who are you then? You know. Then you say, I. Silence. M. Silence. Cass M. Cass with a little silence. N. Silence. Jones. Silence. And then it's just silence. But the sense of knowing. It seems to be the knowing of the of the words of the sound of the thinking. And the silence in between is the same. That seems to be stable, isn't it? That goes kind of through. So you can say, well, this knowing seems to be always there. So maybe that's what I really am. But notice this is just another thought. And then it becomes interesting. Isn't it? I am the knowing. Well, that's just another thought. So this, this knowing is always kind of prior to whatever you, you want to ever label you want to pick onto. It's just the labels don't stick, isn't it? Because... That, that capacity, that quality of awareness, will, that's just what it does. It's just aware. It's just aware that now, right now, you're trying to identify yourself with awareness. So what is that? It's just another movement in the mind. That's a very, it's, it's a very interesting one to really look at. It's, it's, again, it's one of those uncomfortable places because it's, it's like it puts us on the spot, isn't it? So where do I go now? You know, the iceberg is gone. You know? So then you come to this point where maybe you can actually start to realize that any attempt of defining yourself is just is an activity. That's just what it is. So that's why I was saying, like what the Buddha was pointing out, this self is not a thing, it's an activity. It's something that we, we're doing habitually. It's an activity we're doing all the time. It's what the, what the mind does. You know, in fact, another an Indian teacher, I remember, had this, had this image of saying, like, the self is like a caterpillar. A caterpillar, you call it? You know, it only lets go of one leaf once it has hold, held on to another one. You know? The moment you realize, well, I'm not this, 
before you know it, yes, you realize you're actually already standing on a different kind of identification, which you see, well, that I'm not, you know. But, ah, but here I am again somehow, you know, so what is this? And you keep looking, and it doesn't work, you know. So then you just realize, ah, you just drop the activity. And then what's left? It's just this. It's just experience as it is, you know. Without trying to make anything out of it, so without the need to find any kind of identity, so without actually the need to find out who am I or what am I, having any kind of theory about it. So you just allow experience to be as it is. It's a mystery, if you like, if you want to give it a name. So then, you know, you cannot know what you are. You are just what you are. You are. It's just this. You, know, you, you can actually then take out the you as well. It's just, it's just this. You know, that's, that's the Buddhist concept that you come across sometimes of suchness, you know, just like this. That can be a great relief if you see you don't have to actually define yourself. You, have, you don't have to be anything. Once you realize this self is not self, but it's a self thing, it's an activity, then also actually you don't have to always try to abandon it or put it down. Like with, with many of those things, the, 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 what we experience in life, it's, it's just an activity. And we can start to use it skillfully. We can see through it. We know it's an activity. It's not pointing. We don't have to take it serious as some ultimate identity of what we are. So then we can pick it up when it's skillful and we can put it down when we don't need it. When we really become skillful at it. And we can really see how this works. And then we can start to examine. We can look what kind of identity is actually skillful at what kind of moment and which aren't. And we can work at you know, either if you, if you really see through it and you just really spontaneously abandon the ones that we, act, that we realize at, as unskillful, if we haven't gone that far yet, at least we can put our attention, we can work at abandoning, putting away those identities that are not skillful, that we realize are not skillful. And we can develop the ones and use the ones that are skillful. So you can be, and you know, it happens all the time. This sense of self, as it's hardwired with the way, of course, consciousness, consciousness work as, you know, as, as being embodied, it's all the time, but then how, what, what, I, what, what I latch onto it, we can actually then choose according to the situation. You know, at some time, you can be a mother, so it's skillful. You know, that sometimes you pick up the role of a mother and you identify as a mother, but you know that's not your ultimate self or something. You know, it's, just a, it's just a useful, if you like, relative self, sense of self that you can apply in a situation. And even if you're a mother at the same time, of course, you're a daughter, so in another situation, you're a daughter. And in another situation, you can be a, a professional at work. And sometimes you can be a teacher, you can be a disciple, or you can be, you know, you, you see how we can go through all those different kind of senses of what we are. But we know that ultimately, that's not what we are. So the more you actually realize this, as the, the underlying mechanics of it, of the, of that, that, that actually support this, you know, in our experience through the meditation, the more skillfully we can actually use those social conventions and how they feel without believing them. So in that sense, we can look through the sense of self. It becomes transparent. Yeah. And so that means we, we can actually start to function m much more efficiently, actually, in the world. And also, as we're not caught up on the sense of really being a separate kind of something, lasting kind of something, also a lot of anxieties and fears can sometimes, maybe if it's a strong realization, suddenly drop out or gradually fade. So what you find with some with people that you that you meet who are well, one supposes, one understands of being quite realized or quite advanced in this sense, they are not some kind of undefined 
I don't know what, what word you would use, kind of unperson who doesn't have any kind of qualities because they've given up all those kind of things. They can be often, you know, they are very alive, very energetic, often very efficient, and seem to sometimes seem to, on the other hand, some, in some ways, having quite a big personality or a big ego. You know? And I, I would say that is precisely because they see that just as the function of the mind, not as something that they ultimately are. So they're not afraid of it, and they're not hanging on to it. They don't really believe it. So they don't have a self-image that they need to worry about. They don't worry about what you think of them. That, that's, not their, that's not their problem. So that, that takes out a lot, a lot of anxiety, isn't it? They don't have ultimately a sense of being some separate thing that needs to be protected and defended. So they tend to you know, move towards uh, fearlessness. It can be quite fierce. If you, if you, see, you listen, kind of you might have seen a story about Ajahn Chah. You know, I have never known Ajahn Chah, of course, myself. I only know the stories that some of you know, our teachers tell or that you read in books. But I think you get a sense of that, how he could be so many different things at different times and how he could be sometimes absolutely sweet and, and loving and at other times really fierce. You know? But we don't necessarily, of course, know what the underlying energy is that, you know, that manifests itself like that you know, externally. And like Ajahn Chah, for example, is, is quoted as saying, a, a good teacher is somebody who doesn't mind if their disciples hate them. No. Because that means you can really teach them. You can really actually tell them things and put them in a situation where they need to learn from their own shortcomings. Now, if you're always concerned that people like you, <laughs> then, then you're not a very efficient teacher because you're worried about, you know, you know if, I, if, if I point this out to this person, then they're going to be annoyed with me and that's going to be trouble, you know, they're going to be really difficult. Uh, somebody like Ajahn Chah was really fearless. He didn't mind upsetting people. <laughs> you know, if, if he felt that it was good for them. You know, he wasn't concerned about you know, you know, whether it, some discomfort might come out of that for him. So that's why he could be a very efficient teacher. There was a question here related to non-self, which was saying... Regarding self, non-self, I know it is wise to see it as there is suffering rather than I am suffering. But what about with positive things? Does the reflective mind still see having loving, compassion, self-worth as passing as well? Of course. No? In the context, as I, as I was just saying. But there's nothing wrong with that. That's the interesting thing. If you look at in terms of suffering or, or pain, sadness, anger, if you can take out, take away the sense of my, notice that you can practice with that, you know, if you've got pain in the meditation. See, one thing, there's a pain. And see how much there comes in this feeling or in this idea, this is my pain. And if you just try and work with that, if you can actually, if you can separate those things and if you can just go one step back, you know, out of those idea about, the experience that we always approach our experience with this idea of this is my experience. So then pain becomes my pain. If I can just see, well, go back to just what is just the experience in and of itself? Well, there's just experience, isn't it? There are thoughts, mental images. There are sounds. There are sights. There are physical sensations. There are odors, you know, smell and tastes. No, usually, hopefully, while we're sitting meditating, odors and tastes are not very prominent. <laughs> uh, but sounds, maybe sights, if you've got your eyes open, all the rest. Well, that, that's there. 
and there's awareness no, of that. So then you've got this, this sense of what Ajahn Shah sometimes called, I believe that's what he meant, this, you know, this, this experience of, st of stillness with a movement, movement within stillness. No? And, he's, and he's talking about the mind as being like um, still flowing water. It's both at the same time. It's always moving. It's always changing. But it's never going anywhere, is it? It's always here. It's always now. So it's still and it's moving. You know, the awareness being this aspect of stillness, like the space in which it happens, and the experience of what always moving. That's all there is. Then there's the idea of, or the feeling of mine. So what is it? Look at it directly. Again, it's another experience. It's another pattern of experience, which is coming, is going, which is changing, which we can be aware of. Now, if it's there, for example, in relation with pain, what is it doing? No? Pain, my pain. No? And what is it if this, becomes, if, this, if this mind becomes really strong? Somebody was asking about a toothache. No? Or my tooth, my toothache. Just notice whether th there's a sense of this becoming actually more of my problem. The, the suggestion is this, this is actually part of what adds on difficulty to pain. Often some of the edge is actually taken away if I can actually see pain just as pain. Now once I'm there, it's not my pain anymore, it's just pain. I can just notice it as an experience. Like this is a toothache or an aching knee, sometimes it helps to just open the focus. You know, just rather being actually fixed on this pain, say in the knee, and then this idea, this is my pain in the knee. And remember from the talk yesterday, this tendency of the world shrinking you know, to just being this one experience of my pain in the knee, to trying to open the focus and just notice this is just one aspect of all the stuff that's going on right now. And then you take out the my thing if you can. So there's just pain. Next thing, you might even take away the, the, the label of pain. Oh, that's a label that we, own, that we add onto it. And, we, and notice we, we're talking about the mind. It labels things according to its memory. And say, oh, this is something I know from the past. And then I project into the future. Huh? We're saying this is one of the marvelous capacities of the mind if it, if it links into memory. We remember and we can project into the future. But this is also the downside of it. We always interpret every, of every new experience that we have in terms of what we already know from the past. So in, usually, if you operate this way, and we are not actually re reflective, not see through it, we never really have ever a fresh experience. It's always already ex all immediately interpreted in terms of the past. And of course, we use that in order to make predictions for the future. That's the use of it. And it has, of course, its use, but it's also the downside. So if it's a pain, saying, all right, I know this pain in my knee, and I know what's going to happen next. My toothache, I know, well, well this is going to get worse. If I'm not going to do something about it, this is, I don't know what, I mean, I know what happened to my friend. God, she, after, after two days, her face was like swollen two sizes, and she ended up in hospital, and, and this might going to happen to me, and now my mind is already going off. And the whole thing is, see, suffering. That's what the Buddha was talking about. If you can go back, okay, what's happening here? Sense of self, me, my pain. Can I start to deconstruct it and come back to just experience? It's just this right now. Sometimes when the mind is really sharp and focused and, and we take off in the idea of pain, in the end we just feel, well, there's it's something happening there, that much we can say, and it's maybe intense. But we might even come to a place where it's not actually a problem unless we start to make a problem out of it. No. It's not necessary, it's the, I'm not saying that to encourage you to never do anything if you've got a toothache. Of course, it's that, again, if we, if we know skillfully how to use it, then we know sometimes it's skillful to put this down. Well, now it's not the moment to worry about it. 
I work on putting this down, just be with the sensation. And it can be quite peaceful then, and I might even get an insight out of that. But at a certain point, it might actually be skillful to pick it up again and say, well, maybe it's time to do something about it, you know, phone up your dentist, you know. It might be more skillful, you know, when you start, you feel your face swelling up, then it's skillful to, to wake up this relative sense of self and, and my tooth and taking care of it. You know, the, the, the Buddha certainly advertised to take care of our bodies because that's our vehicle, that's what we have, that's what we can practice with and our mind. So we can practice with that, with this sense of self. And then the wonderful thing is with painful things, if you can actually subtract it, if you can go past it, if you can, if you can let, put it down, um, a lot of the suffering can really um, cease there. But the marvelous thing is actually, it's not true like with, with positive experiences, like this joy, this compassion, a, a positive sense, you know, a self-worth, those things, that if he, if he let go of the sense of self around it, that they therefore then in the same way diminish. Of course, the qualities are still there. It's just that I, I don't claim them anymore as mine. My compassion, my positive self-worth, my joy, it's just joy. <laughs> and the, the wonderful thing is actually joy if I'm not claiming it as mine, not that I'm not concerned about it then. I say, well, am I going to be able to hold on to it? How long is it going to last? Actually, those, those positive emotions actually become enhanced. They become more powerful because they are not so self-centered anymore. No? They're just another set of experiences. And that is just something that you just have to find out. One thing is that it sounds good as a theory, but we can all find that out as our own practice. If you start to be able to let go more of this sense of self or this this obsessive belief in this, in this holding on to the sense of self as a real, as pointed towards a real entity, important, the self-importance, the more actually the positive qualities of the heart can just manifest spontaneously and freely and much more powerfully because they, they do not get distorted and to twist it back into being self-service, you know, into, into you know, feeding into our, in our own self-interest, our egocentric interest. They become, the heart becomes brighter you know, because they then can serve truth, that can actually truly serve compassion, to actually also we truly feel our connection with everybody else. If you don't have to hold on to a sense of being somebody separate from everything else, that's true for everybody out there, and there isn't anybody truly separate from, from anything else. You know. You're just part of the picture then. Anything, if you look at that seriously, look at that, anything you can take yourself to be, any experience that you have, anything that you can objectify, it's just part of the picture. So reality is then really, this is just one, you know, it's just one solid kind of reality which is there, just doing what it does all the time. It's not some all kind of separate things that are somehow all interrelated. You know, it rather appears the other way around. There's one reality first and everything that you experience in it is just one aspect of that one reality. It's not my reality. It's not that I'm the whole universe. That's just another idea, right? That's another identification. You can see that's another experience that, that comes up within that. The reality, the lived reality of that, the suchness is much more marvelous, is much more immediate. It's beyond any kind of conceptualization. So I, I leave you with that for contemplation, to look into that, see how that is for yourself, whether it's true or not. No? Or it's just another 
spiritual idea or just check it out for yourself? 